0: Welcome to Uncovered, the podcast series that goes behind the headlines to give you an in-depth look at the stories that matter. I'm Kelly Crichton and on each episode I'll be joined by the National World reporters who are working to bring information to light and hold those in power accountable. In a special episode of Uncovered where we will look at the war in Eastern Europe, I'll be joined by reporter Alex Nelson and editor of National World Nick Mitchell. In the space of a number of days, the shape and future of Eastern Europe has come into sharp focus. The invasion of Ukraine by Russia has already resulted in the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands of people, including civilians and children. Distraught Ukrainians have been fleeing their homes to travel to safer countries, and the international community has been horrified and spurred into action as a result. Questions about what will happen next abound, but first we will consider how this all came about. Hi Alex, thanks for joining me today Can you give our listeners an idea of past relations between Russia and Ukraine and how this invasion came about?
1: Yeah, well, as is often the case with these things, the the background is sort of very long-winded and stretches back, Mm -hmm. you know, decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, But I suppose in terms of recent events, the 2014 annexation of Crimea is um, probably a good starting point. People will probably no doubt remember uh, being in recent history. That following the sort of ousting of a pro-Moscow government in Ukraine, Putin decided to kind of move in and and take back Crimea, which had originally been gifted to Ukraine uh, back in the 50s. Obviously, that operation was uh, successful from a a Russian standpoint. And uh, ever since then, tensions have kind of just been ramping up uh, with Ukraine's sort of uh, want to join NATO and uh, having closer ties with the EU and the West in general. Sort of uh, rubbing Putin the wrong way. Um, so obviously, it came into the news a few months, good few months ago now, that uh, Russia had been amassing troops on the border of Ukraine, and everyone kind of knew. I think everyone kind of knew what was going to happen. Uh, so it was kind of no surprise really when he, when uh, Putin declared uh, Donetsk and Luhansk in the uh, eastern regions of Ukraine. As uh, these so-called People's Republics, uh, and then just a couple of days after that, announced this uh, so-called special military operation, which we now know to be a full invasion of the country. So, yeah, this has been brewing for a while, but obviously in the last week, it's yeah, it's really boiled over into something quite quite drastic.
0: Yes, indeed. And we've seen pictures of many people fleeing the country, but with a population of 44 million, that still leaves a huge number of people in Ukraine. Many men of fighting age have been conscripted and munitions have been given out to people willing to stay and fight. How is the war progressing at this stage? Uh, Well, I think
1: as with major conflicts, it depends on uh, whose account you're taking of, I think, the kind of uh, psychological battle almost and the kind of morale amongst countries is very important to either side. So if you're taking Russia's uh, view on it, uh, it's going exactly to plan. That's what Putin would have you believe. Uh, nothing to report. Everything's everything's going swimmingly. But I think that the more kind of trusted Ukrainian account and and uh, reports from our own defence office is saying that um, the Russian military is hitting obstacles and including logistical obstacles. There's been reports of uh, convoys of troops running out of food and fuel and just basically low morale. They're coming up against a Ukrainian resistance, which I don't think Putin especially, and certainly none of the actual soldiers on the ground dropped into this conflict, could have bargained for. And it's been quite inspiring to see uh, civilians volunteer themselves to to be in the firing line. And um, yes, I think it's probably not going... As Russia would want, um, obviously, it's certainly not going as we would want because, uh, you know, the Western allies wouldn't want to see this invasion in the first place. But I think if there is some small glimmer of hope, uh, it's that it's it's stalling. But obviously that could lead to to increased aggression from Russia. So we'll have to we'll have to see how it all plays
0: out. Not being a member of NATO means a military intervention from Western countries isn't currently a realistic prospect. What is actually being done by these countries to support Ukraine during this time? I think
1: the UK and its allies in, in NATO are doing everything they they realistically can. There's, there's calls for all sorts of things from no-fly zones to direct military action. But I think everyone is acutely aware that for NATO to get involved in such uh, explicit means would result in a much wider conflict. It's a shame in that we can't, step in further and and help these people. But I think in the interests of the wider global community, it's definitely a tricky line to tread. But I think, yeah, the sanctions are very drastic. The sort of most um, severe sanctions we've probably seen in NATO's history, brought in by just about every member state and uh, really hammering the russian economy and isolating it from the international stage so we're told that it will take a few days or weeks for those to really take effect but i think we're already seeing the effects in in scenes of people rushing to take their money out of russian banks the ruble has has crashed i think these sanctions can and will have an effect whether that effect will be strong enough to deter putin remains to be seen
0: Vladimir Putin has been the Russian leader for nearly 22 years. He's long been a controversial figure, but he's now become a pariah in the eyes of the West. Our reporter, Isabella Bonham, spoke to Matt Kurtrup, a political scientist from Coventry University, to understand more about Vladimir Putin.
2: What makes him tick is basically a lot of vanity. He is somebody who we think was bullied at school. He has got a number of, if we sort of take the psychological side, inferiority complexes. He is uh, quite concerned about his height, He's five foot six. He decided he wanted to be a KGB agent. He then took karate and judo lessons. He's just had his black belt revoked by the Karate Association, by the way. He then afterwards did the KGB training. Somebody mentioned his height, called him Voldoya, which means little Vladimir. He didn't take kindly to that. He decided to get into a fight with this much larger man. And as a result of all of this, he was not sent to West Germany as a spy. He got an office job uh, in the KGB in East Germany. It took him 10 years to get promoted from first lieutenant to captain, uh, which is pretty much a rep of slowness. So he is somebody who uh, I think that little anecdote would indicate that he is a hothead. He's somebody who does not think ahead before he acts. And sometimes that will have uh, He also seems to have overestimated his own strength. Hence going into a fight and actually suffer a broken arm uh, and then he doesn't think of the consequences. So if we can sort of extrapolate those very sort of basic personal traits, then we can probably say that he is likely to suffer physically, his army is certainly likely to suffer physically more than expected in Ukraine. And the long-term consequences might also be that he is not strengthened by this, that his dreams do not come true.
0: We saw pictures of Russian troops attacking a nuclear reactor or nearby a nuclear reactor. Can you tell us a bit about that and what you think the intention is there?
1: Yeah, so um, it was the Zaporizhia, I think I'm saying that right, uh, nuclear power station, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, uh, I think shells hit a training facility uh, within within the complex, uh, which started a fire. Fire was put out and what various watchdogs have since said that no nuclear material was leaked or anything like that. But I think it could have been much worse had a kind of more uh, central facility been struck. The Ukrainian President Zelensky has, has since said if that had been the case, it would have been like Chernobyl six times over and, and could have very much been the end for Europe. So I think you know, this is the first time nuclear reactors have been involved in a war zone. So it's, it's quite unprecedented, really. And I think it's a dangerous situation to be in. I don't. Part of me thinks that these places are not being targeted deliberately, but who knows what the, the real um, ambition is behind it all. Uh, they're certainly key targets in terms of strategic control. I would hope the intention is not to cause complete chaos by essentially bombing a nuclear power plant.
0: Amidst all this pain and suffering we're seeing coming from Eastern Europe, there were images coming out yesterday of refugees being welcomed across Europe and being offered homes with people. What is the situation in the UK at the moment with suspending visas, etc., for Ukrainians fleeing c- the conflict?
1: Yeah, I think it's something that very, people are very um passionate about and and obviously being geographically so far away from the conflict we we want to help uh, as much as we can and people are looking for ways to do that i think it's ongoing the debate around uh, visas being waived it seems like an obvious step to take there's plenty of things we can do uh, charities to the date too, red cross uh unicef all that kind of thing and there's there's donations for clothes and other supplies all across the country so um uh, that's our country. I mean, so uh, if you if you just search for what's going on in your area, there's definitely ways definitely ways to help out.
0: It may seem trivial to some, but the worlds of sport and entertainment have been responding to the situation too.
1: Yeah, um, I think things like uh, Russian athletes being banned from sporting events, you know, people see that and they think, well, you know, there's a, there's there's bigger things to worry about at the moment. So so why is this such a big deal? But I think the, the public perception of this conflict, both at home and in Russia is very important. And especially with state-controlled media in Russia being as it is, people might not be getting the, the truthful account of events. And I think if if they see these athletes and other high-profile figures being unable to, to do their jobs properly, then uh, I think they'll kind of ask questions and, and it will raise awareness at the very base level of what is actually going on. So although, you know, gigs being cancelled, I saw yesterday that cats are being banned russian bred cats are being banned from certain competitions while obviously on paper that seems stupid almost and uh, you know what difference is that going to make uh, to the to the invasion well i think getting people talking about it is is quite a powerful thing and i think anything that that draws conversation uh, is definitely something to be celebrated
0: Nick, it may seem trivial to talk about sport or music, but this is about sending a message to the Russian people too. What do we know of how they are responding to this war?
3: I think it's a tricky question. Um, like anything that comes out of Russia, it's not—it's never easy to tell. I think, I mean, when it comes to things like sport and music, we're, we're talking about the soft power, and I think it, it can be easy to scoff at the, the soft power side to all of this. But I think it does make a difference. It's kind of like that accumulation of of different ways in which Russia is being isolated just now. And I think that that definitely does make a difference. It was the Latvian deputy prime minister the other day actually compared Russia and Belarus along with North Korea. So it really is getting to that point where in every conceivable way they are being kind of excluded on the world stage. And I think it's not as important as the economic sanctions that are are currently sort of crippling the, the Russian economy, but it definitely does make a difference it reduces the sort of prestige that, that Russia's been held in in, in in the past. And, you know, whether it's things like Eurovision or whether it's things like Apple or Netflix, you know, pulling out of the country, that does have an impact on on a population that's perhaps been used to these things and these maybe westernised um, imports. And, you know, it piles a bit more pressure on Putin. So I think anything that the West... Can do whether it's uh, the governments or corporations to put that pressure on has to be has to be welcomed. In terms of Putin's popularity, I mean the reason I think it's hard to tell is, is there's so limited independent polling from Russia. That there might even just be like one independent polling company left in Russia. And even if Putin's popularity is uh, 70, I think it was 69% before the invasion. I've not seen anything since then. You've got to remember that that's, that's after two decades of Putin's presidency, unopposed. It's not a democracy in any stretch of the imagination. So that's 70% of people, it's probably more about resigned indifference rather than sort of active support for Putin and his personal leadership. I think what will be interesting to see is what happens if we do get any more polling data from inside Russia following the invasion and if that has made a difference negatively. So we'll have to wait and see on that front.
0: It's becoming clear that Putin's campaign is not making the progress he was hoping for, that the Ukrainian resistance has been much stronger than expected. His statement about placing nuclear weapons at a state of readiness this week would appear as a backlash against the international sanctions that have been coming forward. How much of this is just about Putin and his desire to reinstate the USSR? That is
3: primarily what's, what's driving them. I mean, we know that he he started his career in East Germany. Uh, he was sent there in the 80s. And the fact that he wasn't trusted to actually go beyond enemy lines into the West uh, as a KGB spook. Uh, so he was only really trusted to, to kind of remain on the East side. But he did witness the collapse of the Soviet empire at that point. And I think uh, it's clear to see that his leadership of Russia has been all about trying to kind of reinstate Russia on the world stage and to try and recreate that that kind of Soviet empire of, of these former Soviet states. One thing that's um, important to bear in mind that this isn't driven by any kind of ideology. This isn't about, you know, trying to bring back communism. This is purely about respect, I think. I think Putin is driven by he wants to be respected, and he's, he's got this notion that Russia has lost that respect on the world stage. So all of these interventions, all of these kind of overstretching and invasions over the past few years have been driven by this sense that, that Russia's lost its status. And that's what he's driving at now. One of the interesting things will be that when he, he annexed Crimea in 2014, actually his popularity in Russia soared as a result of that. I think it was, it was up to kind of 80% levels following that action. But this is completely different this time around uh, with Ukraine. I think everyone, it's, it's fair to say, everyone can see that he wasn't expecting such a strong united response from, from the West and from NATO. He wasn't expecting the sanctions to be as extreme as they are. The death toll as well is, I mean, if it's all unverified at this point but the, there were estimations of between 3,500 and I think 4,300 Russian troops killed already in the first week of the conflict. To put that into some sort of context, that is more than the US forces suffered in the Iraq war. So all of this combined is surely having an impact on his backing, his popularity back home. Of course, with Putin, he may well just choose to you know, plough ahead and... Russia is in many ways a police state as it is. He's probably not too concerned about dissent. He's got a long track record in in crushing dissent. So, you know, that is something that probably won't bother him too much. But I think he certainly wasn't expecting this kind of reaction from the West.
0: Yeah, as well as being a military conflict, this is an information war and Russia has long used disinformation as a tactic. How important is it, this aspect of the conflict and its outcome?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think Russia is (sighs) disinformation is definitely one of its tactics now. And it's interesting that it's not exactly sophisticated when it comes to disinformation. We had things like the so-called false flag operations um, just before the invasion, where they were obviously trying to create a a pretext for going into Ukraine. And they were actually quite comical, Mm -hmm. some of them, about how, how bad they were. There was, the one that I remember seeing was the guy who was supposedly had his leg blown off in a in a Ukraine attack. But the, I mean, in the video, you could actually see that he was wearing a, pr- a prosthetic leg. Oh. Um, and so it was so stage managed. Mm. It was it was so amateur hour. But I think it, maybe it just goes to show that in some ways they put out this disinformation, but they don't care. They, they don't care if it is exposed. Mm. And I think it is this this sense of almost like a factory of disinformation where it just spreads confusion and trying to get to the source of the truth is the job of journalists. But it's it's never easy with Russia, that's for sure.
0: And speaking of journalists, we've seen European correspondents become raw reporters overnight. It's a worrying time for everyone, but it can be all consuming if you're reporting on it. How important is it to keep sharing the content coming out of Ukraine, but also fact checking? What are the challenges for the media covering this war, particularly in an age of social media?
3: Yeah, so I think that this is the big difference these days when it, when it comes to war as a story. We, I mean, we're bombarded with video footage, with with various kind of claims and counterclaims from the conflict. And I think, obviously, as journalists, we take the fact checking maybe to the next level. But I think even as, as anyone who's, who's on Twitter or Facebook, there are a few things I think you can do as well if you want to just double check. So Look at the source, look who's who's sharing the, the footage. If they're not based in that country, that's a, that's a warning sign. If, if they're sharing lots and lots of different videos from lots of different areas and, you know, they've just got this kind of constant output, then that would be a kind of a, a red flag as well. So I think it's just being sceptical mm-hmm. and having that sort of sceptical mindset. There are more advanced things you can obviously do when it comes to things like reverse image searching and checking in that way. But I think in terms of just normal everyday usage, you can just adopt a sceptical mindset and just think carefully before you share something, and that that would be the best thing. But the coverage coming out of Ukraine, I think you'd agree, is is phenomenal from the broadcasters and from from some of the the war correspondents over there. So yeah, they've definitely got everyone's fullest respect at this point.
0: Absolutely. And what is the current consensus at this stage around where and how the war will progress now?
3: This is a really, really tough one. I think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to guess how this is going to pan out. I mean, we're only seven days into this kind of full-on conflict. What we can try and glean, though, is um, there have been US intelligence briefings. US have actually shown how detailed their intelligence briefings have been throughout this conflict and to be very open in sharing that as a way of countering sort of the opposite when it comes to Russia. Mm -hmm. What they've estimated is that the siege on Kiev could be in the region of the next sort of four to six weeks before that comes to any kind of conclusion. Then we get into the more kind of protracted, longer term war, which there have been estimates of 10 years, even 20 years. And that's something that uh, I think Liz Truss backed up as well, uh, the UK's um, foreign secretary this week. So it, it looks as if what might happen is, r- yes, Russia will very likely overpower Ukraine when it comes to the, the kind of short term. But the fact that Ukraine is so defiant and so opposed to being, you know, taken over um, by Russia, that I think that means that this will stretch out into, unfortunately, a very long, very bloody war. So... Yeah, I don't think anything is going to be resolved in the short term.
0: My thanks to Nick and Alex for joining me today. You can find continuing coverage of the war in Europe on nationalworld.com.